podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. April is here and sorry to remind you, Manchester United have very little to play for. In the warm glow of a 5-1 win over Leeds in August and a 4-1 win over Newcastle in September, the signings of Rafael Varane, Cristiano Ronaldo, Jadon Sancho and Tom Heaton. This is not exactly what we expected. Welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast, where we're looking ahead to the rest of the season. Nine games to go in the Premier League. No Champions League hopes, no FA Cup hopes. The League Cup has been and gone. The only thing United have to play for at the start of April is fourth spot in the Premier League. And we're a bit lucky to be in with a very small shout there as well. In Series 7, Episode 28, we're talking about the international break, the feelings of apathy towards the team right now, a look at the games against Tottenham and Atletico many weeks on, Old Trafford redevelopment plans, United women playing at Old Trafford, an FA Youth Cup final to come, and Saturday's game against Leicester. In our Patreon bonus Q&A section, we'll talk about Louis van Gaal's comments on Manchester United, Luis Enrique as a candidate for manager, copying Arsenal and the future of the striking position at MUFC. That's a lot to get through. So let's begin, Jack. The international break, this one's England aside, who had a very boring uh, friendly against Ivory Coast. Um, but this March one ahead of a World Cup can be a really exciting one with proper World Cup qualifiers on the line. And we've seen that North Macedonia beating Italy being a, a particular highlight. But the, the African qualifiers, we're recording this on, on Wednesday uh, afternoon, the African qualifiers last night were were brilliant kind of proper competition and and so much riding on the line in those where Algeria, Cameroon, where one goal kind of changes an entire thing. The, the away goals were all showing its brilliance despite it being um, struck off from the Champions League. So yeah, some some fun over the international break this one. Yeah, there's been some great some great drama to be fair. England was not particularly interesting to watch other than the controversy over Harry Maguire being booed. Yeah. But outside of of that, there was some some great games. I mean, like you said, Italy being beaten by North Macedonia was just a, a huge turn up. And I've got to say, as an English person, quite joyful to watch after <laughs> after what they did to us in the Euros final. Um, also, it was really jarring to see Luke Shaw score at that same end of Wembley against, um, who, who was the first game we played? I can't even remember now. Switzerland, before I think. Switzerland, yeah, it was really jarring to see him score in that same end of Wembley as he did in the Euro final. It gave me like yeah. serious flashbacks to that game and how awful I felt after it. I didn't. But watch yeah, it, some luckily. some brilliant games, some serious uh, serious drama going on with the African qualifiers, like you said, with the Algeria game, Senegal and Egypt penalty shootout as well. Sort of a, a repeat of the African Cup of Nations final. We had the whole Salah Mane storyline going on. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I've got to say, I think international football is it's still not the best but I think in the last couple of years it definitely has it has become more interesting outside of the tournament in so, Europe because yeah. of the Nations League and I just think there's been some good drama yeah I didn't admittedly I didn't watch either England game so I'm not the best qualified to speak on this or maybe I am because I had no interest in those games because they were friendlies and it, it kind of showed what a good idea the UEFA Nations League was in, in how it's made those games yeah. entertaining but we were saying just before we start recording that I think we spoke about this maybe in November, October, I can't remember, probably the last international break, that international football could be covered in so much of a better way by looking at those storylines in the African qualifiers in South America, looking at the the tight race. I can't remember who it's between at the moment, um, possibly Panama and someone um, in, in the North American qualifiers. There's all these amazing storylines and North Macedonia is a great one, but I feel like international football's kind of neglected. And it might be because there's, I mean, as someone who, who works in football media, 
it might because by the time there's so many club games, so by the time you get to the internationals, you just want a holiday. Um, but there's some, there are great people covering them, like a Copper 90 often do really good stuff. I saw Ellie Mengen was uh, traveling through London, watching three games in an evening in different parts of London where like the Swedes were watching in one part. The Algerians watching in, in Finchley Park just down the road from from where I grew up, um, which is something I've become very familiar with over the tournaments. Algerians sprinting out onto the streets and shooting fireworks after they win something. Um, but yeah, there's so many great storylines. So I, I think it was having had a really bad end to the club period of the season that we've just had. It was nice to see some just kind of like pure joy of the Senegalese and uh, in the end, the Cam- Cameroonians, not the Algerians. Yeah, we, I mean, we were just talking before we came on air that, you know, we just wish that more of it was televised and sort of given more coverage. I think, especially in the in the UK, everything's about England and Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland, which, you know, obviously makes sense. But yeah. I think international football is in a sort of better place probably than it's ever been in my lifetime at the moment, I think. And, you know, it'd be good to sort of capitalise on that with some better coverage that actually kind of gives it its due because I, I think there are good storylines to, to come from it. I think the problem is that a lot of the time we don't know much about the storylines because it isn't talked about enough. You know, there isn't enough media coverage of everything. So yeah. you know, if especially with international football, it's so important to have the context of a game because otherwise, and when you do have meaningless games like England against the Ivory Coast, for example, you just show up and it, it feels very, very pointless. But if you actually have the context of what's at stake in say the Algeria Cameroon game or the Egypt Senegal penalty shootout, you know, there, there are some really fun games to be had and the tension is, is definitely there. Yeah. Also, you're just saying that made me think because England Ivory Coast is just a friendly. Whereas when international football began to be played, I'm saying this because I was looking at, um, some history of it in the week. We'll get onto United in a second, but when um, when international football began to be played in like the 1890s and, and 70s originally between England and Scotland and then early 1900s, uh, England went on tour to like Austria and Hungary in 1908 and it, it just like gradually picked up and picked up. But in, nations would play each other and they'd be called test matches and they'd be big occasions. And obviously the World Cup and the Euros came in and the Olympics first, but maybe we should not refer to them as friendlies and refer to them as test match. Maybe there should be something on the line. Maybe instead of having kind of a, a one-off against Switzerland, you have a, a regular competition between two countries like England and Switzerland. And there's, there's something to play for just like, like a cup. You have that in rugby test matches as well between two teams as well. And, and uh, cricket as well, even when it's not inside a competition, when it doesn't mean anything to anyone outside of those two countries, you, you have something on the line something regular that that makes it matter to the two sets of, of players and fans in a, in a test match instead of a friendly. I don't know. Um, I think yeah, there's I, so I, much I, they could do with internationals to make them better still. I think the only the only difficulty with doing something, because it, you're right, it's, it's like a unique thing of football that we do have games that we call friendlies because most other sports, yeah, you know, they do have games that are meaningless in the sense they don't contribute to anything bigger than that one game or that one series yeah. of games. But you know, in football, they are just sort of as friendlies, whereas in other sports like rugby or cricket, like you said, they're, they're test matches. You often have a series of them. I guess the the one difficulty with trying to replicate that in football is just how many countries play. You know, that can be done with, say, say rugby or cricket because you only have, yeah. you know, around 10 countries that sort of play it at a very high level. And so you can sort of guarantee that at least once every four or five years, every every nation is going to play every other nation that plays. Whereas in football... You know, I, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, but I can't imagine England have played the Ivory Coast very recently, for example. You know, you can, yeah. it, it's, it's very possible to go like 20, 25 years without playing another, a certain country. Yeah, that's true. 
But then I'm not sure those, if, if friendlies were organized because we hadn't played that country for a long time and we wanted to, I'd, I'd probably appreciate that more, but yeah. I don't think we played the Ivory Coast because it was like, oh, we haven't played the Ivory Coast for a while. Let's have another great match against the Ivory Coast. It wasn't that. It was Cote d'Ivoire available. Let's, let's play them. Um, which, yeah, it, it is a shame. Let's, let's move on to United. Uh, unfortunately, it's been some time since we recorded. Uh, we originally were meant to preview the Atletico Madrid game. Uh, a very busy schedule stopped that from happening. And then after the Atletico game, we thought we'd give it a, a few days before reacting. And, and again, a busy schedule. And then uh, a little bit of uh, apathy, I think it's fair to say, meant we didn't record uh, again. So we haven't spoken to you since we beat Spurs. We haven't spoken to you since we went out of the Champions League. Um Jack, if you had to sum up your feeling towards Manchester United right now in a in a word or two, how would you do that? My feelings towards United were <laughs> I mean, I guess apathy is is one. Um I don't know, I I'm we were we were saying just before we recorded, I would say I'm I'm sort of apathetic to the rest of the season, but still invested and cautiously excited for sort of yeah. longer term stuff. I think, yeah, I think no one can not be apathetic towards the rest of the season to use a, a, a double negative. Um, it's, it's a, there's not much to play for and we're not exactly in a commanding position in, in the top four race. There's a, it's a very slim chance Spurs and Arsenal. If it was just one of Arsenal and Spurs we needed to mess up, uh, you, you, you might back us because we've probably got a better squad than both of them. We, we definitely have a better squad than both of them. Um, but relying on two good teams in decent form to slip up for us to get into the top four is probably too much to us, but we can get onto that. But yeah, I think apathy towards the rest of the season is certainly true. Um, excitement of what's to come? Possibly. Uh, I think I might get that back in a couple of weeks. For now, I, I haven't got it. And, and this is kind of a, a bit of a problem because I'm sure players feel very similar not knowing who the next manager is going to be not knowing whether they're still going to be at the club and with very little to play for it's going to take really good management and good leadership from within the dressing room to get this these set of players playing properly for the rest of the season and not kind of just letting the season fizzle out do I have confidence that we'll see that not entirely um before we talk about the rest of the season, we should talk about the Spurs and Atletico Madrid games a little bit, given we're a few weeks on and have a bit of a unique perspective on that. Firstly, Tottenham was great. Ronaldo Satrick. It was just a shame we didn't get time to enjoy what was a, a good performance and an, an amazing achievement from one of the football greats, even if he could have done it more this season. Yeah, it was it was great to watch. It really was. It it felt like Everything it, it was bittersweet because I was watching it and it was it was just unbelievable to see Ronaldo, one of one of the greatest players we've ever seen play football, you know, having one of his truly iconic performances for United and or and ever, really. You know, this is only his second hat trick for United. He only had one in his first spell at the club. This was a complete match winning hat trick. You know, without him in the game, we would have been, you know, a dead and buried because I thought Spurs were probably the better team on balance throughout the game. We did okay in parts, but it it was bittersweet for me because it was great to see all that, but it also felt like this is what we brought Ronaldo back for and it, and it hasn't panned out that way for most of the season. You know, it, it, it almost made me a little bit sad that this is 
these these kind of performances are, are sort of still there. They're still within Ronaldo, and yet it just isn't what we've seen for the majority of what the eight or nine months that he's been at, been back at United now. But it was as as an as an occasion and as yeah. a as a way to watch. I came out of that game just you, you came out on a bit of a high, and it did it felt like that leading into Atletico. You know, maybe this could be a way to get a bit of momentum into the rest of our season and. Obviously, it didn't pan out that way after what happened in the Atletico game. Yeah, it was one of those where you just wanted to forget about everything else, forget what was coming, forget what had come before and just kind of enjoy it for what it was. And and to be fair, I say we didn't have much time to enjoy it. We didn't. We very quickly moved on to the Atletico game, which was a disappointment. But actually, in the immediate, on that Saturday, I had a, a, a great time just kind of relishing what, what I'd just seen. And it, it was... I mean, it, it was a privilege watching Ronaldo like that. Um, yeah, and, and look, we've we've spoken about um, about how he's impacted the team positively and negatively this season. But you can just forget those things. I think that's too often forgotten in modern football discussions. That sometimes people can't just enjoy things for what they are if they've gone in with kind of a preconceived opinion. But as you say, yeah, it felt like that should be something that would give us momentum. Seeing the reaction of the players after, reaction of the fans, it felt like, right, let's go into Atleti as slight favourites given the score in the first leg and, and let's go through in the Champions League. And, and that was a really bad performance. And yeah, not so much more to say about the Atletico game. It was really poor. Over two legs, we were rubbish. What made it so frustrating for me was that we started the game brilliantly. Like we came out in the first leg against Atletico, we were terrible, and you know we, to be honest, deserved to be out of the tie by the time we got out of that first leg, and we managed to just about stay in it. And in the second leg, we came out, we started really, really positively. I thought we completely dominated the game in the first fifteen, twenty minutes, especially. You know, Langer had that great chance that he managed to hit sort of straight. I think it hit Oblak straight in the face, if I remember yeah. rightly, and. And then after that, we just sort of, again, as we've talked about so many times, we just sort of drifted through the game. We just had no real presence anywhere. Every time Atletico came forward, even when we were doing well at the start of the game, every time we Atletico came forward, it felt like they you know, were going to create a good chance. And they did on many occasions, even before they scored, they were... I think there was, was there a dis. I can't even remember that that many of the yeah. details of the game at this point, but I think there was a disallowed goal, wasn't there? I think there was, yeah. Before the actual goal went in, I think... Was it uh, Reen and Lodi maybe? I think who scored? Yeah, Lodi scored. I I can't remember. Yeah, was it him that scored the disallowed goal as well? I I can't remember. But anyway, there was a disallowed goal. You know, it just felt like everything was on a knife edge. And and I remember, I think I tweeted at half time that we just needed to not panic. You know, we were doing enough in the game to show that we can get joy against Atletico. And what we needed to not do was fall into the trap that we've fallen into so many times this season when we were goal down and we just sort of panic. And it's everyone is trying to sort of be the hero and we're not, playing in any sort of structured way everyone's just trying to win the game right there and then and force it yeah. and we just fell into that pretty much the whole second half was a lot of huffing and puffing but no actual structure no real ideas behind what we were trying to do and to be honest in the end I thought we made it really easy for Atletico to see out the game because they could see that we were quite a petulant team I think in the way that we reacted to some of their gamesmanship yeah. I mean, I mean it's not like we have an inexperienced team. They've, they've all been in enough situations where a team's trying to waste time that you, you just got to deal with it. And the way that you stop them from being able to waste time is you keep the ball and you work, you work it well rather than, you know, shooting from 30 yards every two minutes and giving them a goal kick. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think you've summed up my opinions on, on the game perfectly. So I don't think I have that much more to add. Is there much more to say on that game or should we move on? I, I, I don't think so. Just, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so disappointing. Yeah. It was a, a, a really bad day. And that's, that's why we have the feeling that we have now. Um, one of the big talking points uh, since that game has been about Old Trafford, rebuild, uh, redevelop, whatever use, uh, whatever word you want to use or um, whatever your opinion is. Uh, I mean, first of all, what were your initial thoughts seeing uh, suggestions of a rebuild or a redevelopment? I mean, good from, from, a, from a high level, good that it's, it seems to be taking, being taken more seriously than it has done in the past. You know, Old Trafford is in serious need of of refurbishment, of improvement, because it is, I mean, it's not befitting of a club the size and stature of what we all think the Man United are at at all. It, it's it's just not at the level that it should be. If you go to any of the sort of stadiums of sort of similar start size and of clubs of similar stature to United, you know, whether that's the Emirates, whether it's uh, Stamford Bridge, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium or Wembley, the Etihad, it, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying that Old Trafford is, is not a great stadium, but the actual sort of condition that it's in, the facilities that are there for everyone, it's it's a completely different world, to be honest. And it's long overdue that Old Trafford is redeveloped to make it into a stadium that can sort of compete with with that. You know, we obviously have had. I, I think sometimes with Old Trafford, because it's comfortably still the highest attendance or the highest capacity of any any club stadium in the country, I think. We, we, it's easy to sort of rest on on your laurels with that, I think, and I think the club have been guilty of that. You know, you see getting seventy five thousand through the gate every game, and it's like, well, yeah, we got a great stadium because no one else can match our attendance. But it's so much more than that. The actual facilities in the stadium are noticeably old. The concourses are very small. It it needs serious redevelopment. And I'm, I, I guess before even going into like the details of what the pro- proposals were, I was happy at least to see it that it seems to be being taken a lot more seriously than it has done in the past. Yeah. And it is being taken seriously to an extent how true it is that there's a consideration of knocking it down and rebuilding the whole thing and spending a billion pounds. I don't know, but um, master planners have been hired to look at the redevelopment in whatever form that's going to take. And yeah, in, in terms of, in terms of my, before, I don't know whether we want to talk about how realistic it is, but I, I, I thought, first of all, yeah, I can't see us spending that much money. We're already in £506 million pounds of debt. Uh, yes, we could take out another billion pounds in loans and we would be able to do that because it would be, you would be guaranteeing future income by expanding the stadium and building a big new one with lots of revenue opportunity. So yes, it, it would be possible, but I, I can't see it being likely. Um some people think that this story was kind of put out there um, to kind of gauge fan opinion and in the hope that most people would say, no, don't knock down Old Trafford. And then it would give a, an easy excuse for not doing that. It's it's a cynical way of looking at it. It's possible, I guess. Um, I, I think the truth is that there's something that people want, the people at the top of the club want to do something, but they should have done this 15 years ago. Um Old Trafford hasn't been improved for, for years and years. There have been new floodlights added. There's been new, uh, the safe standing section's been put in. There's been a new disabled section put in, but proper expansion and improvement hasn't happened for more than a decade now. I, I think the key for me is, is yeah, is creating a stadium fit for United and fit for a club the size of ours, but keeping the character of Old Trafford. You mentioned the Emirates there and 
yeah, the Emirates has wider concourses, which are much more comfortable. It's got better toilet facilities. It's got better food and drink facilities, but it has absolutely no character about it. They tried to replicate a couple of things from Highbury with, with the clock end and, uh, and things like that. But it's, it's a poorly designed stadium that I've been to loads of times and it's rubbish. Uh, Tottenham is a much better attempt at it, but still, does it have the character of, of Old Trafford? No, it doesn't. So you, you want to find a way to keep that character. I think the key for me is, is basically the first key is expansion, more seats. United can sell more tickets and should, and it would let us do better things in the transfer market um, and cope with financial crises like the, the one that COVID has caused. But yeah, the key for me, I think, is expand the capacity and something you mentioned, the narrow concourses are a bit of a problem, uh, both in terms of just safety and enjoyment at the game. Uh, so if they can widen the concourses significantly, make that more enjoyable experience, expand the capacity. And the other key, I think, for me is to to lower the, to improve the roof. So first of all, people sitting at the at the very back of the stands can actually see the rest of the stadium and not just the pitch, uh, but also to create better, a better atmosphere by having a roof that helps the atmosphere rather than dampens the noise that, that people create. It should be an exciting thing, but I think because of the way we've seen the club run for 15, 16 years, you hear about Old Trafford being redeveloped and think, oh, what are they going to do to it? Yeah, it'd be nice if we could have any sort of confidence that the people who are going to be making the decision over what happens to Old Trafford, uh, it'd be nice if we could have any confidence they were going to make a good decision, basically, because they've failed to do that on basically every occasion in the last decade or so. I think, so I remember when, when I when Old Trafford was sort of last being discussed about redevelopment, that one of the biggest challenges was the the railway line that runs along the side of the Sir Bobby Charlton stand, because um, because obviously it, if you go to Old Trafford, very obviously Sir Bobby Charlton stand looks a little bit out of place. It's just a single tier stand, you know. It's I, I probably only goes up about two thirds, maybe three fifths of the way uh, in terms of height that the other three stands do. And I, and I remember reading before that that was basically because of the railway line behind the stand. So I think that's going to be one of the major challenges in terms of increasing the capacity, because I think you'd either have to try and somehow build over the railway, and I don't know how the health and safety regulations would allow that, or try and move the tracks, which, again, I don't know exactly how that would how that would happen. I definitely don't want a yeah. new stadium. You know, Old Trafford is... Old Trafford isn't fit for, you know, the, the, the type of club that Man United want to be at the moment, but... It's not in a state of disrepair, like or too old, or has too many constraints in terms of what's around it, other than that, that one railway line that you would say you know needs a new stadium. You know, part of the issue with stadiums like White Hart Lane and Highbury was that the capacity was so much lower than what they wanted that building the stadium up to let's say taking White Hart Lane from I think it was about thirty five thousand up to sixty thousand, it it would Impossible, cost so yeah. much more anyway to to do. You might as well just build a new stadium. It's not the case with Old Trafford. It's it's small incremental improvements to the capacity and then bigger improvements to the actual facilities that are there, like the concourses, like the roof, you know, like the toilets, the food facilities, everything like that can be improved so much. Old Trafford feels, it does. I wouldn't say it feels intimidating. It, it doesn't, but it feels, it, it feels very claustrophobic, Old Trafford, I think, when you walk around it, especially on match days. You know, it, it just feels like there isn't really much space. Even every stadium feels like that to some degree because obviously you've got 75, 90,000 people, however many people in, in one place. But other stadiums definitely do a better job of sort of funneling people in certain ways. And I think that is, for me, where the biggest improvement comes as well as increasing the capacity. And hopefully, I think I think the goal, 
should probably be to try and get Old Trafford up there on par with Wembley. And I and to be honest, I think I think we yeah. could sell that out pretty much every game. Yeah, it should be. It, Borussia Dortmund have the most consistent, uh, the, the largest consistent support in Europe and United should be on par with that. The new Camp yeah. is, is obviously bigger. The Bernabeu is bigger, but Dortmund is the club that has the, the highest average attendance in Europe, I'm fairly sure, um, unless that's changed in, in the last couple of years. I think part of the thing they could do with Old Trafford, and I've, I wrote about this for United We Stand in Autumn, I think, um, is you just have to be a bit more innovative. If Yes, the stadium should be redeveloped in, in some way and should be expanded, but there's so much ground around Old Trafford that United own that can be transformed into something that creates a much better stadium experience, even if that's not inside the stadium literally itself, which means pre and post-match kind of experiences of of, of bars or uh, a kind of a family zone. And City do it in a very City way that's grim and weird and, and a bit shit. <laughs> but there is a way of doing that that could be brilliant where you use the ground just outside the stadium. There's always, the main concern is that you're you're ruining local businesses. So you, you have to do it with an awareness of that and, and make sure you're not doing that and invite local businesses into whatever kind of structure or venue you create. Um, and that, that is a concern and that does have to be uh, re- thought about. But I think there's a massive area to improve pre and post-match experiences around stadium in football and, and United should try and take a lead on that. And this is the kind of thing that must and, and supporters trust should be campaigning for as well and working with the club on as well as issues around ownership. Um, I think it's just an easy, an easier and cheaper and quite possibly better way of doing things that otherwise could cost loads of money in terms of redeveloping the ground. So yeah, if it costs too much to widen concourses, then leave them as they are and create a massive outdoor venue um, for, for pre and post-match and possibly even half-time if you can make sure security is good enough. Well, I think it's, uh, we have football in general and, and Man United have, I think there's quite a lot to learn from cricket here. Sorry to our American viewers and anyone else who's not from a cricket playing country. We've talked about cricket quite a lot today. <laughs> but for anyone who's been to a cricket game, you know, you, let's say you're at Lords or the Oval, wherever. You know, I, I know obviously cricket is, a kind of, is the kind of game where you don't have to be sitting there watching the game the entire time. But around the ground, yeah. you know, there's so much going on all the time. There's, there's like outdoor food and everything that you can get. But also at most cricket games, there's a little net where you can you can bowl and get the speed that you're you're bowling the ball at. It'd be so easy to recreate stuff like that at football. There's often, you know, little picnic areas where you can just sit out and there's tables and chairs like a family zone, like you were mentioning, Harry. There's so many things that you can have around the game around the game. Again, football is is not a sport where you're gonna come in and out of the game. You're gonna have fans in their seats, you know, pretty much the entire 90 minutes. But for before and after the game, there's so many things that you could do. You could easily have a little simulator where you're testing, you know, how hard people can, can kick the ball with prizes for whoever gets the you know, the fastest speed. There is loads of ways you can have massive outdoor viewing screens where you could have other games that are on during the day. Exactly, yeah. The Premier League, it's not like you just have one game a day. You could easily have a massive sort of outdoor beer garden where you're selling drinks. People can come in, they can watch the game. You're all outside. You know, there's, there's plenty of ways you could do it. Old Trafford has, if you just go on Google Maps and look at Old Trafford, basically all of the space around the ground is owned by the club. You know, there's so much that can be done with that, basically, basically, if you if you go up to the canal on on one side, to the motorways on either side, 
you know, it, there's there's so much that can be done with, with that ground, and it sh- and it should be put to better use because it would make the match day experience so much yeah, better for people. Absolutely agree. Um, definitely something to think about, and hopefully something fans will be consulted on. And then um, these are the kind of opinions the club will hear. Um, on the subject of Old Trafford, Manchester United women played their second ever game at Old Trafford on Mother's Day last Sunday, in British Mother's Day. That is for any um, concerned listeners in other countries. You haven't missed it. And, and won 3-1 against Everton. Went behind very early on, which was a concern. This was second game ever at Old Trafford for the current version of the women's team since it was uh, refounded and restarted in 2018. Um, but the first with fans, because the last one was during lockdown. That one was against West Ham. United won. It was a great day. The players enjoyed it, but it was also very strange. It was at the height of of lockdown, and and you know, like the the team photo was socially distanced. The players weren't meant to celebrate together, etc. This was much better. Crowd of just over twenty thousand, I believe thirty one or thirty thirty one thousand tickets were bought, but in the end, uh, the the official attendance was just over twenty thousand, which is still good. Obviously, a record for the season. Um, hopefully, it'll be it, those those crowds will grow. And yeah, it was a great day for, for United women. They have a, uh, an exciting end to the season. They have got something properly to play for. They're third in the Women's Super League at the moment. They're above Man City by three points and goal difference. City have a game in hand. United have four games. City have five games left. Uh, if City win their game in hand, they will either be uh, behind United or above United on goal difference. And then there'll be four games left to play. The first of those for United is against Brighton at Lee Sports Village on Sunday lunchtime, I think. And I spoke to uh, one of the January signings, loan signing, Senior Brun, for this week's uh, matchday programme, which you can get for, uh, I think it's a, a pound fifty at the game at Lee. And this is a, a sneak preview of her reacting to Sunday's experience at Old Trafford. Oh, obviously, like, uh, the big experience. I think uh, it's one of those games days you remember. Like, when you look back at your career and you're done playing. That stadium has so much history and you can just feel it when you step, step onto the pits, like walk into the locker rooms as well, like the whole atmosphere around. Great experience for all of us. Important we got the win as well. That was the most important. Like it's all about football and winning the games. Uh, and and obviously all, all the stuff around was a bonus, but but in the end it's just about getting the three points. And so overall a uh, huge experience for all of us and, and also for me in, in person, like very nice big experience. I'll, I'll definitely look back on that with, with a smile on my face. The other exciting thing, as well as United Women playing at Old Trafford, is the under-18s will be back there at some point in April. They reached the FA Youth Cup final, as I'm sure you've seen, by beating Wolves 3-0. Two goals from Charlie McNeil, one from Alejandro Garnacho. Don't know our final opponents yet. Not in Forest or Chelsea. They play each other on Monday night, Monday the 4th of April, I think. Uh so we'll find out who we're playing then. But a very exciting, a great achievement. And hopefully that'll get a massive crowd at Old Trafford. And that is certainly one of the big, big areas for excitement and, and kind of hope going into the end of the season that United women can get into the Champions League spots by finishing in the top three and that United could win a first FAU Cup since 2011. And there's some really exciting players in that under-18s team, Jack. Yeah, some really exciting players. It's been fun to sort of follow along with their their journey this year. United's record in the FA Youth Cup really hasn't been very good at all recently. I think is this our, I think this is our first final since 2011, isn't it? I, I know we haven't won it since then. But I don't, I don't even yeah. think we've made it back to the final. Chelsea have been you yeah. know a very dominant force in in the tournament since then, but there are some really exciting players in the in the current crop of of uh 
players going into that final. You know, Alejandro Garnacho is a really good talent. He's just been fun to watch all season. He's really been the standout for me, someone that I always try and look out for in these games. But, you know, I just, I hope that they're able to pull it through. Regardless of who we play, you know, Notts Forest or Chelsea is going to be a, a tough game. But it's, I, I think some, it, it's one, one thing I love about British football at times is how some of these competitions that, on paper, you don't think are maybe that important. Like, you know, an FA Youth Cup, it, I think if you were starting football again from scratch, it probably wouldn't carry very much weight in terms of importance. But historically, it is such an important trophy and there's so much sort of at stake here, even though it is just an under-18s tournament. So I, it'd be a massive, massive achievement to win it. And, you know, we've seen from our last 2011 youth team, not all of them went on to be United greats, but we've had a lot of them come through in the first team. And it does, I think, set you up well for success longer term at United. Yeah. And yeah, winning the Youth Cup doesn't, or more accurately, not winning the FA Youth Cup doesn't mean your under-18s team isn't good. As United can attest to over the last few years when we've had some very good teams, the the teams that had people like James Garner and Ethan Laird and Dylan Levitt and further back, Rashford and McTominay and uh, many other talented players who have, have come and gone and maybe stayed United and, and many who have gone elsewhere, they didn't win it. Um, and they've a lot of them were, were knocked out. I remember... They're being surprised when United were knocked out, I think in the fourth round by Brighton a few years ago when it was a team of of Chong, Gomez, uh, Greenwood, Garner, uh, Laird, loads of these talented players. And yeah, they were knocked out because they weren't good enough um, as as a team against in a, in a cup environment. And that's why it's such a, an impressive achievement. There have been great United teams. If you look at the, the United teams that have won the Youth Cup, obviously the class of 92 gets the, uh, is the most famous one. And the 50s ones are famous. But if you look at the other teams who won it in 2003 and two, who got to final in 2007, they might not be as well-known names, strangely. So it's a, a great achievement. And it is really exciting and lots of exciting players. We'll cover that more uh, once we know a date of the final itself. I'd, my guess it would be in the last eight days of April, probably. That's just a, a guess. Um, right, Jack, let's uh, talk United's first team. Against Leicester on Saturday evening, five thirty kickoff. A lovely time for a match to kick off, as I think I said for the for the Tottenham game. You said earlier it's it's hard to be excited about the next two or three games, and I think that's definitely true. I think the atmosphere at Old Trafford on Saturday will be a strange one. It's been a long time since we played a game, probably the longest gap we've had all season. I would assume uh, about three weeks. I mean, what do we say about this game? Leicester not in the, in their best season. Not in their best form. It's a game. I mean, if we lose, top four is over, and and the apathy and, and boredom at this team becomes even greater. If we win, it doesn't change too much. But we, it, it very much is a must-win game. Yeah, as you were started speaking, I was I was about to say, yeah, it's a must-win game. But to be honest, every game until the end of the season is a must-win game. I think if we stand really any chance of of overhauling Arsenal, if assuming that they win their game in hand, they would end up seven points ahead of us with the same number of games played. So it's, you know, it's it's going to be a, a really, really tough ask to overhaul them. And then you've got Spurs in there as well. We don't have a particularly easy run of games. We've still got to play Liverpool, Arsenal and Chelsea before the end of the season. Leicester, Leicester's always a, in the last few years since, since Leicester's title winning season, it feels like every single game that we've played against Leicester has been just really, really closely fought. And, it's it's felt almost a little bit of a 
yeah. reminder, I guess, of where United's level is at because it's always felt like two teams that are very closely matched. You know, even in the, the terrible defeat to them earlier this season, it was a, for a lot of the game a very, very tight affair. And I expect something pretty similar. They're obviously not having a, a very good season. And I think the United can get a lot of joy at them because they're defensively, they have not been good for the vast majority of the season. But I just, I'm never that confident going into games against Leicester because. <laughs> in the last few years they've either been terribly bad or they've just been really really tight quite cagey affairs you know I feel like we've, we've drawn at the, the King Power Stadium so many times there's been, and even the one we won 2-0 at the end of what season would that have been 1920 to get the Champions League where yeah. Lingard scored right at the end we won from a penalty and a Lingard last minute goal it's just always very very tight games I'm expecting something similar it's, it's must win. That, that's really what there is to say about it, as every game will be until yeah. the end of the season. I just hope we could, yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be good fun. A win would be brilliant and would be a, a beautiful tonic to the last few weeks of, of kind of not wanting to talk about United and not wanting to, to watch United yeah. at the moment. It would be lovely. Um, I think a win, a win and a good performance, I think would be, would be massive, but for the fan base and, sort of helping keep people engaged with United to the end of the season and for the players too like you mentioned it's difficult to if you know if you lose this game it's difficult to really stay motivated for the rest of the season yeah it'd be difficult as fans to stay motivated to to really become too invested in the team and it'd be difficult for the players as well so I think this is every game is important now because obviously with there's so little room for error but this feels particularly important to just Basically, just to keep us as fans and the players sort of yeah. fully engaged and invested until the end of the season, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, all we, all I care about is keeping me as a fan kind of given some, something to hope for, something to engage with. Um, what, what, yeah. what can we hope for? Obviously, top four is the aim, but it's, it's not an unrealistic aim, but we're not, we're not kind of in the driving seat for it. We're not the favourites. What, what other things? Can we kind of be excited about in these last nine games? I, I suppose there's the prospect of seeing Jaden Sancho carrying on his form. There's hope that Marcus Rashford could regain some form. That would be brilliant to see before the end of the season. There is uh, the prospect of Alanga carrying on playing well. There's a prospect of maybe seeing a bit more of Hannibal uh, off the bench. What, what else is there? Uh, there's not that many other young players apart from Hannibal and really ready to come and maybe make their mark. Shuratere has trained a lot and played, I think played four times for the first team, but he's not, he's not ready to play for the first team. Hannibal is closer to that. So what else is there to, can you think of anything else to, to be excited about before the season's end? I want to say yes. And then rattle off five or six things that we can be <laughs> so excited about, but I, I, I can't really, I don't think there is all that much to, to be that excited about. I mean, obviously, hopefully, being somehow still in the fight for the top four. Other than that, I think players to sort of look out for. Sancho is probably top of that list. He's been very, very good recently, but I still feel like there's more to come, which yeah. is, you know, exciting. I, I still don't think we've seen the very, very best of, of Sancho, despite how good he has been recently. I think, yeah, the likes of Ilanga, hopefully seeing Rashford with a return to form. Maybe some of the young players coming in, like Hannibal, like you mentioned. You know, I'd also like to see some other players sort of get back to some of their good form, like you mentioned about Rashford, you know, players like Luke Shaw, 
maybe Harry Maguire as well. Um, and then also, I guess, to, I I hope, and this is something we'll come on to, I think a bit more in the Q&A soon, but I hope that, you know, this may be the end of Ronaldo at Man United. And I would like to see a few more of those kind of iconic performances like we saw against Spurs for him, if this is to be, you know, maybe his last 10 games or so for United. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think this will be the last few games for Ronaldo United, but I would, I Neither would also I, like but to I see. Hope, I, I think it would be for the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be great to see that. I'd also, there's there's a few big games. A couple of wins in them would be brilliant. They always are, regardless of the context of what we're in. If we can manage to get something at Anfield or have a good win over Chelsea at home or good win. Uh, uh, we had the good win against Spurs. Who else have we got left apart from Liverpool and Chelsea? Arsenal. Arsenal yeah, Arsenal away, of course. Yeah, all of those would be a, a good result in two out of those three would be would be fun. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult to think of too many things. Let's wrap up. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. We're going to go to a patron Q&A, where as I said at the start, we'll talk about Van Gaal's comments on United being a commercial club rather than a football club. We'll talk about Luis Enrique uh, and a couple of other things. Uh, for this week only, you can all listen to the patron Q&A as supported for by our patrons. So thank you patrons for making this possible. Um, but yeah, it's a free Patreon Q&A, so carry on listening if you want to hear about that. If not, uh, we will speak to you next week. For more from Jack and myself, you can find Jack on Twitter at... At U-T-D-T-A-I-T. And you can find me at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. That's where you can find out about how to sign up to be a patron so you can hear what's about to come every week and get your own questions in as well. For all of you leaving us now, goodbye. Have a great week. Okay, patrons and everyone else, let's carry on. Um, patrons, thank you for your support. Thank you for your questions. And let's dive straight in because there's some really good ones this week, starting with Michael Byatz, who says, following up on Louis van Gaal's comments on United as a commercial enterprise, at what point will the lack of trophies and the on-field success, well, the lack of on-field success impact the commercial success? Will the Glazers reevaluate their approach if revenue from kit sponsorships goes down? It's an interesting one, this, because I think, so every quarter United release financial results and then have a, an investor's call. And every time at, at those kind of calls and meetings, it said, oh, brilliant commercial success. This is what we've done. Uh, continued commercial growth. But the truth is, if you look at the numbers, United's commercial growth is pretty much flatlined for the last half decade. There was a, a continued growth and there is, I think, still growth, but not in a way that's really impressive. Um, so the lack of on-field success has impacted that. The signing Ronaldo has obviously helped. And I think having Ronaldo at the club will stop any properly negative impact in the short term. But in the long term, the kind of, the decline of United's commercial success has already basically begun. And no Champions League next season would affect that again. I think it's no Champions League. Two seasons in a row is what literally impacts the bottom line because the deals are negotiated on that basis that Adidas pay uh, a lower fee if United are not in the Champions League. I'm sure other deals are, are negotiated and, and structured in the same way. So at what point will it affect commercial success? It already has. Will the Glazers reevaluate their approach? Uh, I don't think ultimately it's down to the Glazers. I think it's, they are obviously at the top and, 
could intervene, but I think it's down to uh, people who make decisions on on commercial deals and, and, and marketing. I assume the approach is often being reevaluated, but will it be reevaluated enough to, to kind of direct more attention to on-field success? I I don't know. I don't think so. And to be fair, I don't think the problem is we're not seeking on-field success. It's just we're not good at it. And yeah. There's a bit of nuance there. Yeah, yeah. You took, took the words right out of my mouth there. I, I don't, for everything that the, the Glazers have done at United, I, I genuinely don't believe that they they run this club and don't want us to win. I, I do, however, think that they don't, they don't care if we don't win as long as the money is coming in. I don't think it's that, you know, they, they just want to rinse every single pound out of the club and whether we finish, you know, 15th or first doesn't matter. I think it does, partly because it obviously does affect the the commercial revenue that they get. And, and also their asset is better if it's a club that's having success on the field rather than a club that, you know, even even though it might be making 200, 300 million pounds a year, let's say it, it's not, the stature of it isn't as good if we're not a, a, a very good club. I think the problem is just that every, the to me, it, it, the way that football club should be run is that you put, footballing results at the very top and everything else sort of falls in line behind it. Whereas I think at United, you sort of have these competing priorities of the commercial success and the on-field success. And like you said, we just haven't been very good at the on-field success. And a lot of that is down to the organisation of the club, which obviously comes from the Glazers. I don't, I, I, I genuinely don't believe that they own the club and, you know, don't care at all for, for whether we're good on, on the field. I just don't think they have any idea how to make that happen. And that is what we've seen so much. So I, I, yes, I do think the priorities need to be shifted. I think it needs to be more, you know, on the field success over everything else. Yeah. But I don't think that's just a case of the Glazers phoning up the club or sending out a memo one day and saying right now, you know, being good on the pitch is the only thing we care about because it's not that simple. You know, there's a lot of other things that go into that in terms of restructuring who is making which decisions, where the power lies, how, you know, people communicate to each other, what's the overall strategy of the club? How do we recruit, you know, into the academy? How do we decide which manager we want? How does the manager's appointment filter down into how we do everything else? There's so much that go- else that goes into that rather than, you know, besides just saying right now, on-field success is the most important yeah. thing. And look, United have are and have been caught up by their rivals in terms of commercial departments because of several things. The main one being a lack of on-field success, I think, and a lack of trophies. The other thing being that I, I don't think United are lead the way anymore. I think, uh, well, I mean, this is clear in many departments, United got complacent in the early kind of, well, since the Glazers took over and particularly in the early 2010s when we're still being successful because of Sir Alex Ferguson and then no longer being successful. And other clubs are more innovative, more creative and more successful in what they do in certain departments than United. So uh, it's a little difficult. So it, to, to answer Michael's question, on-field success has impacted commercial success already. Will the Glazers reevaluate? It is a difficult one to answer, as I think we've we said. Um, Steve asks, what do you think of the idea of keeping Ralph Rennick until after the World Cup and then giving Luis Enrique the manager's job? Steve says, in his opinion, um, out of Enrique, Pochettino and Ten Hag, Enrique has the best chance of competing at the level of Guardiola, Klopp and Tuchel and thus would be worth waiting for. He could be consulted on transfers, etc. in the meantime. 
I agree with the, uh, I, I basically agree. I think, uh, I, I think Enrique could be, could well be the very best manager United can get and could be a brilliant United manager. He's a, an outstanding candidate and probably the outstanding candidate, but he's also the most unavailable candidate and a hundred percent unavailable to join in the summer. So it's very tricky. Um, maybe we could talk about Enrique properly in a second as a candidate, but to answer the question, I, no, I don't think so. I, I had Ralph Rennick done a Solskjaer, then yes, but can we wait another few months with Rennick? No, I don't think we can. And can we get another interim? Well, that's a very bold call to make to get a second consecutive interim. And who would it be? There's no obvious option in the current coaching staff. It's not the right thing for Darren Fletcher to do. The others are, are Rennick staff themselves. And it's worth bearing in mind the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's also worth bearing in mind the World Cup's halfway into the season. So not only are you kind of sacrificing half a season, but also Enrique's coming in at a terrible time to become United manager. There's eight days between, or seven days, I think, maybe eight, between the World Cup final and the next Premier League match that follows it. Assuming Enrique has some success with Spain and gets a little bit into the tournament, there's no way that that's going to work. Um, I think I think the only option would be to have Enrique come in at the end of next season and get a a one-year manager. Who would that be? I have absolutely no idea. So in theory, I would love Luis Enrique to be an IT manager, but I, it's going to take some bold and creative manoeuvring to make it happen if if we want that to. Yeah, absolutely. I I think Enrique of the three... The three play, the three names are being sort of consistently linked to this job in Enrique, Pochettino and Ten Hag. I think Enrique probably has the best track record, to be honest. I think they all play very good football. Oh, They've all had def- I mean, success. Uh, but- sorry, just definitely had the best track record. He won the treble. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think what the, the difference that I see between Enrique and Pochettino and Ten Hag is that They've all had success, obviously. They, that's why they have such good reputations. But Enrique is the one that has done it at the highest level and won consistently and won trophies at that highest level. I know Ten Hag has won a lot of trophies with Ajax. It is different doing it in the Eredivisie versus La Liga or the Premier League. Pochettino, obviously, I thought he did a phenomenal job at Spurs, but they never managed to get over the hump despite being very close. At PSG, he's probably going to win win the league this year. I think they're sort of 12 points clear or something like that. But again, it's in France where the competition isn't quite so good. They obviously just got knocked out of the Champions League. En- Enrique has both the, the very good style of play. It's very appealing to watch attacking football, high intensity football. And he has a track record of you know winning trophies at the highest level in the toughest competitions. So yeah. he is, to me, the outstanding. He ticks every box. Yes. He's got, he's got the character and the track record and the style of play. Yeah. And to he, be honest, he I has thought, it all. even in his most recent job, I thought the job he did with Spain at the Euros was phenomenal. I thought Spain were yeah. the best team to watch throughout the tournament. To be honest, I think they deserve to beat Italy in the semi-final. I think he's taken, he's taken Spain from a team that were kind of on the way down, to be honest, and had been for quite a few years since their sort of glory years at the turn of the last decade. And he's, he's built them back up despite the fact that their team is good, but it's not... You know, it's not a great Spanish team. I think he's done a good job there. So I would love him. I just, I don't think the timing is, is going to work out because we have to, we'd have to sacrifice at least half a season, if not a full season to get him in. I think. And I don't think we can afford that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think 
Enrique being at Spain as well and what he's done there, as you say, not just in terms of having more success, but the fact he's managed with Spain, international football at that level, you're managing with limitations because he can't buy players. And so Spain don't have a, don't have the right striker as has always been the problem with Spanish teams. And he's kind of had to work a way around that. And seeing that he's managed to do that is another kind of, another string to his bow, uh, I think, because he would be coming to United and then be able to buy players again with a, a good transfer budget. But kind of seeing him in that situation where he's had to really adapt and, and work under limitations makes me even more convinced he'd do a good job because he changed it. At Barca, he played, I think, more direct than Guardiola's Barca and more uh, probably better to watch and more exciting. With Spain, he's gone even more direct because the players are less good than they were at Barca. Um, the one concern I'd have about him at United is that we don't have Sergio Busquets, who he's used obviously with Barcelona and Spain and is absolutely essential to everything. And where would we find a new Sergio Busquets from? I have no idea because we've been looking for 16 years or something. Um, do you think there's any any way it could work getting a, a manager first season and then Enrique? It's, it's really difficult. It You'd have to have a, a properly good one-year manager and I, I just don't know who it would be. The, the only thing I and, I, and I can't even think of a name who, who would fit this bill. The only thing that I could imagine would be a manager who was like at the right at the end of their career, sort of didn't want to take on Another, a, 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 yeah, someone. In fact, Art Wenger is, is probably obviously uh, forget the fact that he was at Arsenal and United. No, main I think people would love years. to see. I but think United fans would love to see Wenger. Wenger is is exactly the kind of manager that I think it you just could say into my head. Yeah, would, would could come in. He's someone that clearly wouldn't want to take on a project for any length of time, but could come in, could make the team play well, and just make the year fun. I think if you, if you know that you're going to go into a season. That and it's going to be a bit of a waste, basically. Not maybe not a waste, but it's not going to contribute to anything sort of building for the long term. Although you want it to be hold on, fun, but it's, it's it is contributing because say we're going to go down this. Say you appoint Arsene Wenger and he he wants the job, which is I think beyond the realms of possibility. But let's let's go with this hypothetical for a second. You have a lot of very talented young players at United. Wenger is a great manager for a young talent like that and nurturing them and bringing them through and protecting them uh, as we saw at Arsenal with with so many examples. He would, it would not be, the, the positive way to look at it is it's a, rather than a waste of the season, it's a free hit of a season where it could go wrong, it could go brilliantly and you could have some great fun knowing that if the manager does well, you're not going to keep him still. You've got a, another great one coming in and he would set up these young players with confidence for Enrique to come in. So in a hypothetical, it sounds dreamy, but yeah, I think it's beyond the realms of possibility. Now I'm, I'm trying to think of other other managers that could uh, come in and do a similar thing. Maybe like t- two others that sort of pop into my head would be like Jupp Heynckes or Vicente Del Bosque. Yeah, probably um, too too late for those two, isn't just, it? Just trying to think of, of uh, someone. He's obviously at, at Ancelotti. At the moment, yeah. but someone like Ancelotti would be. I was great thinking as well. Ancelotti, um, but I. I think, I mean, are Real going to win the title? Probably. Is he then going to leave straight after that? Probably not. Yeah, no, exactly. Maybe uh, maybe we could get Ronaldo recruiting him since they worked so well together at Madrid. Yeah, but I th- uh, yeah, I, I mean, maybe. But yeah, basically, I just, I don't League, think. It's a bit more possible. Yeah. I suppose. 
But I really don't know Ancelotti who else. Only, I don't know who. Who else would even be uh, under consideration for it? To be honest, like who would? Louis van Gaal. Well, yeah, he he did spring to mind as well, but given yeah, his comments in the last few days, I don't think he'd accept the job. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Maybe Carlos Quiros. Um, now that Egypt aren't going to be at the yeah. World Cup. Obviously, he used to be yeah. to Alex's assistant. I'm um, just looking for a list of most successful European managers: Giovanni Trapattoni, <laughs> uh, Marcelo <laughs> Lippi, Fabio Capello, Sir Alex would be uh, an, another interesting hypothetical. And again, one yeah. beyond the realms of possibility, and one that I wouldn't want. Um, but yeah. I feel yeah. We've we've been on this for a while. Wenger into Emery is uh, is dreamy, but not going to happen. So, Steve, I don't think it's possible. And I, again, yeah, just to reiterate, I think if Enrique was to be appointed, I think it would have to be the end of the season. I, I think it would just make it it would make it unnecessarily hard bringing him straight after the World Cup. Do Do you think there's any way that he would? I I know that he has said that he doesn't really want to, but hypothetically, do you think it would be possible for a manager managing in the World Cup? to also come in and, and manage a Premier League team in the build-up? I think with Enrique, no. I think I think if... Yeah, I know Enrique said he hasn't. I, I also mean, I, th- I think if you had a manager with with a, a really high-profile assistant that they'd been with for their whole career, you could kind of have him overseeing things with the assistant, mainly working on stuff and, and with the manager being allowed to go... I, I, re- really? No, not really. <laughs> Fundamentally, no. I think with a really high profile assistant who was very trusted by the manager, yes. But I don't think there's many of those about right now. And I don't, I mean, it wouldn't work for A, Spain would simply refuse and probably sack him. Um, as we <laughs> saw with, with Lopetegui when he took the Real Madrid job, wasn't even starting the Real Madrid job, just announced the Real Madrid job before the 2018 World Cup was then sacked. But yeah, so I don't think. Yeah, I mean, so. there's. I'm, I'm just. Look, I've just looked it up now. There's. There's nine days between the end of the Premier League, like the, when the Premier League breaks for the World Cup, and then and the first game of the tournament. So I yeah. don't. I don't think yeah. it'd be uh, be feasible. In a normal in a normal season, possibly, but not not with a mid mid season World Cup. Um, we should move on. We've got two more questions to answer. The first one from Corey Lennox, who says, "What hard decisions do you want to see made with personnel this summer?" It seems that the selling of some of our beloved players might be on the cards. And do you think we should take the Arsenal approach if we don't end up qualifying for the Champions League, sacrifice a couple of years of success to create a good young core and develop a true plan going forward rather than try to keep up with a ridiculous pace City and Liverpool seem to set over and over again? My first point would be, I take issue with the idea that you have to sacrifice a couple of years of success to create a good young core, especially given United have players like Bruno and Ronaldo and uh, let's say De Gea, Maguire and Varane. Yeah, that's not a possibility or an option. You can create a good young core at a squad without needing to sacrifice a couple of years with a good manager and a good setup and a, a bit of depth to your squad. And United kind of have created a decent young core without having success um, and without it being exciting, which is a shame. Sancho is a great player. There are other good young players in the team, uh, probably fewer than before. Uh, so I, I take issue with that, but in terms of what our decisions do you want to see made with personnel? Yeah. United might need to sell some of the favorites, but the problem is 
it, it's, it will be difficult because there are other players that need to go anyway. Already leaving that we know of are, are kind of Lingard and Cavani, possibly matter or probably matter even. Uh, I think Matic will stay. I think Ronaldo will stay. I think De Gea will stay. I think, who are there any other certains to leave? Not really. It's Cavani, Lingard and Mata. Uh, 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 do you have any players who you... Th- Maybe Pogba. I guess you're... Yeah, um, uh, Pogba, yeah, of course. Um, I guess yours, your your hard decision would be to get rid of Ronaldo, would it? Yeah, I think there's a few. To be honest, I think in an ideal world, I think United would probably see something like 10 departures this summer in my eyes. But yeah, the ones sort of spring to mind, Ronaldo... I have a tough time with this because I don't think that Ronaldo is the problem at United as it's sometimes been claimed that he is, but I don't think he's helping us all that much either. And I just don't think that he adds enough to make it worth keeping him around for another season. So I think he should be one that leads Cavani and Lingard, you already mentioned. It's going to be pretty much impossible to do this because of his contract, but I think De Gea should, should go. Not that I think De Gea is a terrible goalkeeper, but I don't think he fits the way that I think we want United to play. Um, and I think we, we've we had, I mean, we've handled the goalkeeper situation terribly with him and Dean Henderson, but if it's not Dean Henderson, then then someone else should probably be coming in. Then you've got, you know, like we mentioned, Pogba, there are players like Matic who, you know, has done a decent job, but realistically shouldn't probably still be here next season. If we want to kind of move, move forward, you mentioned Mata already, I don't think Rashford will leave, but I think, you know, he, something sort of needs to happen with Rashford. In, I think in terms of talking to him about his future at United in, in a longer term sense, then I think one of the harder decisions is Martial. What do you do with him? That is probably <laughs> yeah, going to be a decision <laughs> for a new manager, but, you know, he's obviously someone that's been out of favour, has gone out on loan, has spoken about his desire to leave. A new manager might come come back and tell him that, you know, he wants, to, wants him to be our starting number nine and wants to play him every week and might love him. But if that's not the case, then, you know, he's also a yeah. tricky one. So there, there, are, there are so many decisions. Like I said, in, in my head, I think United need to be having a lot of players leaving. Phil Jones is, is another one that we hadn't even mentioned who probably should be on his way out. It's, um, there, there, there's a lot well, of decisions to, to make. Uh, Axel Twanzebe will probably be leave. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dean Henderson might leave as well if, if Henderson De Gea doesn't look like he's going to leave. Yeah, possibly one of Dalo or Wambasaka. I don't think that will happen, but it, that there will be a possibility. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe Eric Bailly. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely possible. Um, but I, I think to to the to the the broader point that um, that Corey was was mentioning about sort of the Arsenal approach of almost like sacrificing a couple of years of success. I think the difference between where Arsenal were and where we are now couple of things one I think we, like you mentioned we do already have I think a good young core that's why we were so excited about this season because we do have a you know not crazy young like Arsenal but enough relatively young good players that make this team exciting going forward but also I think part of the issue at Arsenal was that they did have senior players when Arteta got there the problem was that he viewed a lot of those senior players as not part of his plans going forward and when I say senior players I don't mean players like Ronaldo's age I mean you know, players sort of late twenties, early thirties, who still have a quite like, like Bellerin, and- yeah, he's like Bellerin and Urza when he got there. Even Xhaka to some degree, yeah. Aubameyang, Lacazette, like these were players who Arteta didn't necessarily want to get rid of straight away, but he didn't view them as players that were going to be integral to what he wanted to do at Arsenal for the next three or four years. I think at United, a lot of the players that we have in that age bracket are players you would 
at least want to keep around for and have as starters for three, four, five years. You know, the likes of Varane, of Maguire potentially, of Fernandez. You know, there are there are players like even even Rashford because he's you know he's not that that young anymore. He's twenty four. You know, coming to sort of that stage of his career, there are players at United that are you a little bit older. Luke Shaw is another one. You can't waste these players' peak. Is yeah, the, exactly. Is the and if and if they and as Arteta has done. If you don't view them as as part of what's going to happen going forward, you sell them now. And I don't think that those players are, are problems at United. You know, when I think about what we need to improve on, those players that I just mentioned are not really... The only one maybe that you want to upgrade on would be Maguire. And even then, I, I, I still think that Maguire has a lot to offer anyway. You know, so I think it is a bit yeah. of a different situation because we already have a decent young core and the old, the slightly older players that we have aren't players that you'd want to be trying to shift out, at least in my in my yeah. view. I agree. And there will be some, there will be squad options kind of automatically coming in, in the summer in uh, Ghana, possibly Levitt, uh, possibly Laird, although I think he'll probably need another loan. Uh, Hannibal will, will have a greater role to play. Uh, a, a is potentially like another one if yeah. he does stay. Yeah. So you, you can kind of afford, because Ghana has been so good out on loan, He's probably not ready, I don't think, for United's first team. Or he isn't ready, I don't think, for United's first team. He could prove me wrong. But he can be a squad option. So there is kind of a, a bit of a safety net as well that means you can can get rid of maybe one more player. It's interesting. Just on Ronaldo, I think very briefly, because we've got one more question to answer. In fact, this is about Ronaldo. So I'll read Ted's question. Ted Popham says, if Ronaldo and Cavani leave in the summer as expected, who should United get in as their main striker? Um, there's a second part. We'll answer that in a second. Uh, I don't expect Ronaldo to leave. He's on astronomical wages and he has a two-year contract with an option for a third year. And there is no other club in the world except PSG who would even think about paying Ronaldo the money he's on. He can't go to America, as as is well publicised. I, I can't see him going to uh, Qatar. If he went to sports in Lisbon, he'd have to take an enormous pay cut. I don't think he's going to do that yet. I think he will go back there one day, but probably after his second year at United. So I don't see Ronaldo leaving. And my in brief opinion on it at the moment is, as you said, I don't think, I think Ronaldo can be a problem. I don't think he is the problem and a good manager will make it work. And especially if there isn't much interest in Ronaldo from elsewhere, whoever the manager is has an upper hand and can say, if you'd like to leave because you're not going to play every game, then you're free to do so, but find yourself a, a, a new club. If not, we would love to have you here playing kind of one of every, or uh, two, one or two of every three games and being a, an amazing mentor to the young forwards here and everyone else and helping to create a good dressing room culture. And he can be an incredibly useful asset. He is one of the greatest footballers of all time we should use him while we have him and appreciate him, but use him in a valuable way and not rely on him to be our main striker week in, week out. Cavani leaving, United will need another striker. Um, I don't think that would be Martial. Uh, I think Haaland will go to City and Mbappe will go to Real Madrid. I think United probably want kind of more of a, a, a kind of, yeah, kind of someone like Haaland and not Mbappe. Uh, Mbappe was never an option, but kind of someone like Haaland a good target man. And so you're looking at cheap alternatives and you should probably look to Europe. I think Calvert-Lewin could do that. He wouldn't be a star player, but could do a good job for United up front. I think you should use Ranić's expertise on good value European talent to find a 
cheap but useful striking option. Yeah, I I agree with everything there. And I, as, mu- as much as I think Ronaldo probably should leave, I don't think he will because, like you said, there there just isn't a good option of of where he would go. I think if this was five or six years ago, there's a chance maybe he would go to China, but their sort of foray into high wages for high-profile yeah. footballers seems to be over. You know, Qatar and maybe Saudi Arabia maybe are, are sort of around, but I don't think... I don't think he'll take that step. No, yeah. neither do I. I think he still feels that he's got too much to offer as a player to sort of take that sort of downward step in terms of the level that he's playing at. I, it is going to be a tricky one, I think, for United because assuming that Ronaldo does stay, you know, you're not going to be able to attract the, the best available strikers in Europe because they'd have to play second fiddle to Ronaldo all season. And, you know, I'm not saying that's the wrong decision because obviously if you've got Ronaldo and paying him those kind of wages, then you probably should be playing him most of the time. But, you know, you're not going to get someone, say like a Haaland, because he's not going to want to sit on the bench and play, you know, 50% yeah. of the games rotating with, with Ronaldo. So it does make it a little bit tricky. I I think basically the way to go is is to try and get someone relatively young, relatively cheap who can come in and basically be that striker that sort of gets rotated in and out with Ronaldo. Maybe someone who has some flexibility to play out wide as well, so he can sort of do more than one job for us. Who that player is, to be honest, I don't know. Um, but I think that is the the, the kind of model that you'd, you'd want to be looking at and then hope to make your sort of more long-term big name signing at striker probably in the summer after this one, assuming that, that Ronaldo does stay. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Uh, Ted also asks, and we will finally wrap up after well over an hour in a second, he says, will we ever get that much needed defence midfielder? I hope so. I don't know who it should be. I really hope so. We need him. Anything else to add? <laughs> I, th- I think we will make at least one midfield signing this summer. I don't I know. Think, I, realistic, my realistic prediction is we will sign the wrong type of midfielder. Yes, that is, I think, very, very possible. I could, I could see us buying... Someone that's a big name, that's that's a good player, just not not what we need, basically. I think I could see us... Not, I, not I, the sitting six. Yeah, I could see us signing a Pogba replacement sooner than I can see us signing a, a, a number six. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's all. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners, for your support and for listening. Um, we'll be back next week. See you then. Have a good one. Sports Social Podcast Network.